Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Chaba Zabo. Chaba is a lecturer at the University of Lucien Blaga in Sibiu in Romania, although he's also studied in Hungary and Germany. And on today's show we talk about how moving around and working in different countries has contributed to his work, which mainly focuses on Roman religion, particularly in the Danubian provinces, including some deity called... Mithra, 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 oh, Mithras. Yeah, sounds interesting. We discuss his new project on this topic, as well as his PhD on religion in Dacia, a Roman province that is roughly akin to modern Transylvania, modern Romania's relationship with its Roman past, and how Roman archaeology in Eastern Europe has developed over the last hundred years. Charba also reflects on his hopes for the future and that the growing collaborative efforts between scholars across what was once the Roman world can continue to flourish in the face of more isolationist politics. Just want to say a quick thank you to Charba for joining me for this episode, because one of the things perhaps we don't think of so much is the contribution of Roman archaeology from the eastern side of Europe. But as we discussed on today's show, building these relationships across Europe, building a greater understanding of the Roman world in areas that perhaps people in the likes of the UK and other Western European countries and also America are not always exposed to, can give us a much better understanding of the Roman world as a whole. So thank you for joining me and on to the show. actually in Rome a few weeks ago uh, and you got to go see the Mithraeum in the Circus Maximus or next to the Circus Maximus which I've never been to but I saw the pictures how, how did that all come about? Uh, so I, I, this friend of mine uh, who's uh, who a PhD researcher in the La Sapienza University uh, he, he had some friends who are working in a private association and they, uh, they had regular um, tours for tourists or, or even uh, students of archaeology in, in, in the uh, Mitreo uh, from Circo Massimo, which are actually uh, not really related to, uh, to the Circus Maximus. It's it just near the, the, the building, but it was separated by, by a road. Uh, so it was somehow in between the Ara Herculi and the sacred area of Rome and, and, the, and the Circus Maximus. So I had this opportunity to visit uh, with this uh, with this association and some some other tourists. Uh, it was really a, one of the my my biggest uh, uh, experiences in in uh, in any kind of mitraum. I was in many mitraum mitrea. I think I visited at least fifteen uh, sanctuaries of mitras in the last uh, six years. But this is uh, probably the best preserved I, I have ever seen. Uh, I mean, you can even even see the uh, the original floor, the uh, most of the decorations, the marble decorations, inscriptions in situ or reused uh, inscriptions in the fourth century, and it, it's also a very touching atmosphere. Like somehow the building reflects this. Uh, uh, original uh, originality of, of the cult, which is about like how to reconstruct the speleum, the the cave of uh, Mithras. Uh, so it was it was a great experience to visit such an archaeological site, which you can usually find only in Italy, uh, probably. 
Yeah, no, I've, I've never been in there myself. I mean, I've been to a few of them, the Mithraea in Rome uh, and Ostia as well, but I find that some of them, they, they are quite difficult to get access to. As you're saying, it's about who you know, really, uh, that can help help you access them. Uh, several times I've tried to go to the one at um, San Stefano Rotondo, uh, and every time I just get an email back saying no. <laughs> but uh, but one day. Uh, what So what actually, what, what took you to Rome then? Was it actually a research trip or was it just um just taking a few weeks away yeah, it was a it was a research trip uh i think it was my first research uh, period after a long most almost three years long uh, break i finished my phd in 2016 i had my defense uh, in 2017 and after that i had a very long almost one and a half two years uh, break in academia of course, I try to keep my relations uh, uh, alive with uh, with my researcher friends, my archaeological community, but uh, only after you have an institutional background and you can go to research. So this was part of uh, actually a, a PhD project, uh, sorry, a postdoc project uh, I have now with the University of Szeged in Hungary. And this project is focusing on sanctuaries in the Danubian provinces uh, during the Principate in the second third century and uh, as I mean you know unfortunately we don't have much uh, access uh, to the to the bibliography and this is always a big problem for Central East European researchers that uh, we are very much limited by by our institutional uh, uh, capacities, the libraries are are not uh, good enough for for uh, research, especially when you when you have such a big topic as as uh, this uh, this postdoc uh, project. So this was uh, my major aim to to begin a research in with good libraries, like when when I really have uh, uh, access to the latest uh, bibliography and the contemporary uh, literature on on uh on the province Danubian provinces and and the roman religion yeah so what's the what, what are the aims of the project then you say the danubian provinces so is that noricum pannonia uh moesia dacia i'm guessing as well because that's that we'll get around to your phd a bit later but that was the, the subject of your, of your phd yeah what, what so what's the actual aims of the project in terms of looking looking at the religious aspects of this region so, uh, I observed that in the last uh, 100 years they were not uh, I mean Roman religion uh, research of Roman religion changed a lot uh, especially in the last uh, two de- decades uh, mostly in Germany and France I think these are the two major uh, centers now for uh, Roman religious studies um, especially after 1998 this change uh, was begun by by Mary Beard and uh, John North especially Simon Price, I mean, this trio who wrote this famous book on religions of Rome in 1998. I think this was the beginning or the starting moment when, when Roman religious studies uh, changed. But all of the new books came up in the last 20 years after this uh, paradigmatic book of, uh, of uh, Beard and uh, the two other uh, authors, especially the Rupke's, uh, Rupke's work on Roman religion. They were usually ignoring the Danubian provinces. So like, there is a huge mm-hmm. material, more than uh, 6,000 votive inscriptions in seven uh, provinces. Uh, as you said, Noricum, Rhaetia, the two Pannonie, Dalmatie, uh, the two Mercia, and uh, of course Dacia, which is somehow already done. Uh, like in my PhD, I focused on sanctuaries and Roman religious uh, communication in, in Dacia. 
And I, I try now to go a bit beyond the provincial borders because these are also our, uh, it's a, somehow it's a mistake or not necessarily a mistake, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a comfort of our discipline that we are always thinking in provincial limits. And uh, I think Greg Wolf mm. had a very, very good article in 2004, uh, like about the future of Roman uh, classical archaeology. Uh, what's to do? I'm, I'm not sure about the title, but it's something about uh, the future of uh, Roman archaeological studies. And uh, he was stressing already in 2004 that we should go beyond the provincial limits and to think a bit globally to, to go to see the mobilities between provinces, especially those areas in the Roman Empire which were well connected. And I think the Danubian provinces Although this notion is a modern one, it's, it's, it's a modern uh, invented uh, notion from the 18th, 19th century, but uh, it definitely exists in the, in, in the Roman period too, like the, the costume system, the publicum, publicum portorium uh, illyrici, was uh, this economic unit within the Roman Empire. And uh, all the provinces that I mentioned are, are in, in, in a very uh, living uh, contact with each other, also military mobilities, but also civilian and and also religious uh, connections. And I'm trying now to 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 analyze what was happening actually on religious terms in this area of the Roman Empire, how the religious mobility occurred, and what were the results of this uh, religious transfer between these areas. This is the theoretical part of the project, and the pragmatic part is to map all the sanctuaries, the archaeologically, the archaeologically attested uh, uh, sanctuaries of this uh, area of the uh, Roman Empire. Yeah, it's interesting, as you were saying, uh, this region, I mean, first of all, in terms of what you were saying about looking beyond the provinces, I just remember uh, Ray Lawrence as my second supervisor for the PhD. I think at some point we were talking about the shifting borders of provinces in the later empire and whether or not one particular town would have been in, I think it was Pannonia or Noricum in the later empire. And then he was like, does it actually really matter? Like in terms of like, does it matter if the border of the, the province actually moved this way or the other way in terms of where the town actually lays? Because at the end of the day, the town is still where the town is. It doesn't actually change. As you were saying, in terms of sometimes I think we do tend to divide we tend to like carve up the Roman Empire into these provinces, which, as you say, is is perhaps misleading because it's not that you suddenly get to the the division between Noricum and Pannonia and things completely change. It just carries on to some extent. I mean, there are obviously there are some sort of organisational differences, but by and large, it doesn't necessarily change for the person on the ground as they move to one area or another. It's also interesting you saying about how religion hasn't been given uh, enough attention in this 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 region roman religion hasn't been given enough attention when i when i published the article in uh, a few years ago on the the fate of temples in noric and pannonia the general reviewer comments that i got back and the reason that i was quite surprised it, it got published because i was only doing the phd at the time but largely the response was just yeah no one's ever really looked at this before it was just like a big gap that existed and i think as you're saying more widely as well the uh, religion in that area of the Roman Empire doesn't tend to really uh, get the attention that other, it has in other areas, particularly you know, more, more sort of central areas of the empire. Because it's interesting as well that earlier this year we had TRAC, uh, Theoretical Roman Archaeology Conference here at Ken, 
uh, Zena Kamash did the keynote, and Zena was talking about the representations of different provinces in uh, the publications that have come out of track over the last, I can't remember how many years we're on, we're getting close to 30 now. And uh, she was saying that they're very British focused, very Italian focused, to some extent, Western European. And then you could see on the graph of the different areas that she showed, a lot of the Danube provinces were quite low down. Why do you think it has just been the case that there hasn't been as much attention paid to them as as other regions? Because obviously, you know, these were major parts of the Roman Empire. I mean, when we think about Pannonia in particular, it was a major military uh it had what well, had a lot of military stationed in it i mean people like septimius severus were raised up to become emperors there as well why do you think perhaps that it hasn't garnered the attention that other regions have that there must be many reasons actually mostly political and his and the contemporary historical uh reasons like uh, if uh, we just analyze the uh, major publications the 19th century uh we just need to think on theodor momsen's uh major books on Roman history. Uh, I think uh, there is a pretty important section on the Danubian provinces. So this marginalization of, of this area of the Roman Empire is mostly because of the 20th century, the Iron Curtain. I think uh, it had it had a it had a major role in, in this ignorance of, of this area because unfortunately the uh, Central European uh, Central East European uh, researchers were not able to leave uh, their, their this the Iron Curtain and uh, the Soviet uh, bloc, and the other other part of the world, the Western European uh, uh, scholarship somehow maybe was not so much interested, or they didn't have access to the material itself. Again, so there was like an, a communicational gap between the two these two worlds and two scholar academic uh, communities, and I think this was this is one of the main reasons why why we have uh, almost a 100 years a gap or, or, or a break in, in the research history. And, and the other reasons, yeah, maybe uh, the ex- accessibility of the material. I mean, unfortunately, Central East Europe is, is uh, it's a very multi-ethnic uh, uh, region of Europe. You need to speak many kind of languages to get access to the uh, local museums. Uh, I mean, I just remember, for example, the work of uh, Martin Fermasser and the big uh, scholar of, of Mithraic studies, who was probably one of the last uh, Western scholars actually who had a major project in also, and who visited personally uh, uh, the Danubian provinces in the 20th century, in the 1950s. And uh, if you read the introduction of uh, the Corpus Inscriptionum Mon- uh, Monumentorum Mithriace, uh, he he explains there how hard it was to get ex- to get in contact actually with with the local scholars with the archaeologists from Romania from Yugoslavia from Czechoslovakia from Hungary and so on. So like uh, I think the, his case is is a, is a good example and it also answers your question. Like it was really hard to 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 uh, get in contact and there were very few case studies where. Western scholars uh, had a good relationship with uh, with uh, East Eastern Europe, and um, John Wilkes, I think one of the the big names. I, I definitely need to mention his his article uh, in in the Cambridge History World History on Roman on Roman uh, history. Uh, he has a big chapter on the Danubian provinces. It was one of the few uh, case studies. 
Uh, and also there were a few uh, scholars like uh, Mochi Andras from Hungary who had very good relation. He had a good relationships with uh, Simon, um, not Simon, sorry, um, uh, Ronald Simon. And also uh, Bodo Andras, for example, was a good friend and had a very intense correspondence with uh, Freire, Shepard uh, Freire from Oxford. So like there are some connections between uh, the Central East European community and the Western community, but these are, uh, they, they were very much limited by political reasons. And this is why the Danuban provinces was almost, uh, always marginalized. If you see also the history of the Limes Congresses, the big uh, military historical research, Limes Forschung is also a bit uh, Western European centered. Um, but they tried to maintain somehow uh, the relationship, at least. There were, there were conferences organized uh, in, uh, in Hungary, at, at least, which was one of the less communist <laughs> or the less, um, I would say, uh, severe dictatorship in the, in the 1970s. But there were the first Limes Congress, for example, organized in Romania was only in the 1990s, so after um, the Iron Curtain fall. So this is one of the major reasons, I think, that this, this area of the Roman Empire was uh, marginalized a bit. But you can always find some examples. As I mentioned, John Wilkes' name, I think it's essential and it's, uh, it's paradigmatic. But also, I was uh, very much surprised when I read, for example, the work of uh, uh, Jocelyn Toynbee on the history of Roman uh, art in Britain. And uh, she had also very nice... Uh, booklet on on the mitraeum uh, of uh, from london the walbrook mitraeum and she mentions there for example uh, some uh, very interesting round reliefs from Dacia, which uh, which are very similar to those uh, was found in uh, in the walbrook mitraeum so there was always of course they tried to maintain a contact and uh, and a direct uh, relationship with this area of the empire but uh, it was really hard uh, to to create a direct relationship. Do you think that's changing at all? You yourself, coming from Romania, but you've studied in Germany as well, and say you've just spent some time in Italy. Do you think there is starting to become much more of a, a, the connectivity uh, is starting to to increase now? Yeah, definitely. I I think it's enough if you just. Uh, Look on the publication list of uh, some uh, British uh, publishing houses. I, I'm not sure if I can name now here one, but like just look at the Arho Press uh, uh, list of uh, books on Roman archaeology uh, series. Like I, I, I don't have now statistics, but I think at least 20% or 30% of the books are from Central East Europe, and there's almost no international conferences. In, uh, in Roman studies, Roman archaeology, Roman religion, uh, uh, small finds uh, studies, ancient bronze uh, studies, amphora studies. Uh, there are uh, like the last uh, big congress of, um, of the Limes Congress was in Serbia, for example, in 2018. Uh, in the same year, in 2018, September, there was the big uh, uh, pottery, Roman Pottery Congress in, in Romania. So I, it's definitely changed. And this is mostly because of the European Union and, uh, and uh, all these mobility programs, research grants, uh, and uh, the Erasmus program helps a lot also for many students of uh, this area of Europe to 
to go in the West, uh, we have an accessibility, a greater accessibility to, to the big research libraries. We have at least, if we have the time, of course, then we can go in, in Rome, in Frankfurt, in Berlin, in London, in like those big uh, meccas of, of, the of our research field to, to stay there a few weeks or, or even a longer period. But it's, this is definitely uh, it's a changing environment now. But we still have some gaps, like as I mentioned, there is no uh, map, for example, with all the sanctuaries uh, of the Danubian provinces. Um, and I, I can name many, many other projects which, uh, which could be, which need to be done because there was, there are no systematic uh, work before. There was, no, there was no researcher who were dealing with this uh, area of the empire. We'll circle back around in a minute to just talking a bit about your PhD, but just on the subject as well of uh, interconnectivity between different um, geographical locations of people studying in different areas. How have you found it as somebody that has gone from Romania? As I say, you spent time studying in Hungary, you spent quite a bit of time in Germany uh, doing your PhD at Erfurt. Uh, how have you found that kind of moving between places? How how do you think has it affected your? I mean, it must have done. How has it affected your work? Well, for me, it was a really great experience because, um, like, moving from a country to another is not only about uh, your person. You, you pers your personality is also changing, of course, and uh, but it's also like. Uh, you face different kind of schools, different kind of uh, educational uh, traditions. Um, I mean, in, in Central East Europe, especially in Hungary, the classical archaeology and Roman studies are, are very positivistic. They they are when when it comes, for example, to to my own research field, Roman religion, it's like this Vistova school, like Vistova Georg Vistova, the founder, founding father of Roman religious studies, is still somehow um, a paradigmatic uh, name in, in Hungarian religious studies and the epigraphic approach, for example, to understand Roman religion only through, uh, through inscriptions uh, or literary sources, of course, but uh, because for Pannonia we don't have much, so uh, most of the researchers are dealing with epigraphic sources and, uh, and analyzing almost every single letter philological uh, analysis of the uh, votive inscription like when you when you get in a school like Erfurt for me it was like a shocking uh, experience when when i when i realized that we can have also a different theoretical approach we can uh, go beyond some uh, traditional uh, secular um, academic traditions for example and and to use some contemporary theoretical methodologies or approaches for ancient uh, ancient case studies but this was uh, like also a conflictual case for me to to unite positivistic school uh, the methodology of a positivistic approach and this new type of uh, anthropological approach of, of, of the recent studies in in, uh, in, uh, in in germany for example so because uh, it was it was a good experience it helped me a lot to understand different case studies, different like schools and, and traditions, how, how can we actually use for, for ancient uh, materiality? Like what we really have is about, it's just archaeology, of course, in, in the Danubian provinces. But the question is, and this was always very provocative for me and helped me a lot to think a bit broader, 
how can we go beyond just uh, the descriptive uh, approach, like just describing iconographies, describing objects, uh, and making archaeological catalogs. This was, I think, uh, Central East European uh, Roman archaeology uh, need to go beyond this uh, secular tradition. Mm. It's one of those things, I think. It's it's interesting in terms of when I was starting out, I, I was very much interested in just the archaeology as, as material. And then suddenly you get exposed to theory. And at first I was like, I don't get it. And then suddenly you have this moment where you're like, oh, wow. And then it suddenly opens up all these possibilities of how you actually approach the evidence and how you interpret the evidence. I remember talking to to Andy Gardner on the podcast way back when. God, that must be getting on for close to a year ago. But we talked there quite a lot about theory. And he was saying as well that he was initially quite hesitant to the idea of theory and then came around to it. And now that's largely all he writes about, actually. The realization when you come to it, these particularly, as you say, anthropological uh, approaches to archaeology and how that suddenly opens up all these different avenues of how you interpret the evidence. Also, just want to say it's quite, quite ironic. Yeah, you were saying about traveling around and the benefits of the EU. You guys will probably still have that in a couple of years' time when we won't. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, unfortunately, but they uh, all fingers crossed. Maybe we still will. Uh, we're not out of the EU just yet. But uh, but yeah, um, as I mentioned, I mean the reason the reason you went to Earth or when you when you went to Earth, uh, you were doing your your PhD on on Dacia and, and religion there. So I was wondering if you just talk a little bit about that. I talked about your current project, which uh, has kind of grown out of that research, but could you say a bit about what I suppose in some respects what what was Dacia like as as an actual province? Because I guess as we were saying, these areas of the Roman Empire which lie now in what we refer to as Eastern Europe perhaps don't get the the attention that they warrant or haven't had the atter- attention they warrant. And I suppose Dacia is one of those provinces because it was I suppose a later addition in terms of a province and then it wasn't maintained as a province for as long as many of the other regions. So what, what was Dacia like as uh, yeah as a province in the Roman Empire? Actually uh, so all what we know from uh, all what the Western the Western literature knows from uh, Roman Dacia is, is coming now from from uh, Anglo-Saxon literature, especially from the British publications in the last 20 years. And here uh, I definitely need to, to, to mention, to highlight the work of Jan Haynes, uh, who was the edit, one of the editors of uh, Journal of Roman Archaeology Supplement books in 2004. And that, book, that volume, which was a very good collaboration between uh, UK scholars and Romanian scholars, was the first step uh, actually to, to open this, the materiality of Roman Dacia, the Roman archaeological material, for the Western uh, scholarship. And the second uh, important book was uh, Johanna Olkan's uh, monograph on, on uh, landscape and on Roman Dacia in 2007. And uh, this was also my starting point when I, when I began to work on, on the, the religion in Roman Dacia, the sanctuaries uh, of this province, because on the other part, we have the local bibliography on Roman religion in Dacia, which has more than 1,400 1, titles. Uh, we, we collected all this uh, bibliography with one of my colleagues in 2014. And, but most of them, as I said, it are simply uh, description of uh, reliefs, uh, catalogs, and, uh, and this very positivistic approach on the epigraphic material. On the other hand, we have this two box from UK, which it somehow we opened new ways to interpret archaeological material, and uh, I, I really loved uh, the book of Joanna Volpiana. I think it was 
it, it is still the best monograph on Roman Dacia, and uh, and it helped me a lot to to have a new approach on on Roman religion too in this uh, in this province. Uh, this and you asked about the province itself. Well, I think we don't have time now to to analyze <laughs> to analyze why Dacia is uh, is so important. But I think uh, um, I think in, in Greg Wolf's book on 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 uh, history of Rome on uh, and the empire story. There is a very beautiful line which explains how the Roman Empire works, and he he says that the Roman Empire is like a wave of an ocean when it it get out and uh, then smash everything, and when it and goes back, then it changed totally the landscape. So like Dacia was uh, somehow uh, an area which indeed was uh, under Roman rule a very very short time, only 160 years, 170 years, but it was formed in a very essential period of the Roman Empire, the history of the Roman Empire. It was the age of Trajan, the age of uh, the second century AD, which is uh, what everything what you get in Dacia are, uh, are are from the so-called High Empire. It's already formed religious cults, uh, well-formed communities. The materiality which is coming there are from everywhere, from uh, from the whole Roman Empire. We have communities from Syria, from Asia Minor, from Greece, from Britain, from uh, Spain, from Gallia. Basically, there is no province, I think, in the Roman Empire which you don't find uh, a small community or at least an individual from every single province. Even from Egypt, we has uh, we have some names in in, in uh, Dacia. So, like, it was a very interesting mixture of all what Roman Empire represented in the second, third century. So, it's it's a kind of mini miniature uh, of the Roman Empire, and then uh, suddenly end before the Roman Empire came into its real crisis. Like, uh, and especially in religious terms, in this Dacia is it's, it's a perfect example for uh, the pagan Roman religion, because uh, in, in Dacia, we, we don't have much evidence for Christianity. It, it, the province ends in 271, officially at least. So Christianity probably was present only by some individuals, but definitely not by uh, institutionalized churches. So this makes Dacia a very special province, I think, because it, it gives the best what the Roman Empire had in that time. Um, due to those very small communities from all part of the Roman Empire. And this makes also um, an interesting case study to see how these communities interact with each other in a very small scale, uh, in the same geographical area, how religion, uh, how religious transfer and religious appropriation can occur in such a short-term period, only 160 years, that's basically three, four generations maybe. So uh, I think this is the secret of Dacia. It's, uh, it's short time existence, and uh, it it was formed in the best period it it was possible. Right? Uh, this is really the the uh, best of of the Roman Empire. In modern terms, what is the equivalent of Dacia? Romania is is Dacia bigger than Romania? Just to give an idea of what kind of area Dacia corresponds to in terms of uh, modern countries. Uh, it's just part of Romania. Yeah, it's it's uh, entirely uh, part of uh, modern Romania, but it's mostly uh, Transylvania and Oltenia. So, like uh, that means uh, the inner Carpathian area of uh, Romania and the south west part of uh, modern Romania. So it, 
two different historical areas, Oltenia, which was uh, actually uh, Dacia Inferior. Dacia is a modern notion. Uh, the Roman official name was uh, the Three Dacia, Trium Daciarum, the province of the Three Dacia, especially after Hadrian's uh, administrative reform. So like uh, what is uh, Dacia Inferior, uh, later Dacia Malva, it's, uh, it's Oltenia today. And uh, the rest of the Dacian, uh, the two Dacia, Dacia or Dacia Parolisensis and Apulensis, are Transylvania, the historical part of the Transylvania. One, one thing I was wondering about, actually, uh, just leading on from that, is what's the, the relationship between modern Romania or modern Transylvania and Dacia in terms of is there a general... Do people feel connection uh, in that part of the world to... Uh, the Roman heritage that it has, or, or would you say other areas of history taken precedent over that? I was just quite interested how that varies from place to place in terms of what pe- modern people in modern communities think about the Roman past, uh, whether or not something that they actually pay any note to, or, or is it something that, as I say, is quite marginalised? What's it like in that area of the world? Well, uh, Dacia was uh, uh, left by the Roman administration in the end of the third century. But uh, as you said, that like the Roman materiality, the, the cities, um, uh, and all these huge monuments, especially the palace of the governor, the, the uh, legionary fortresses, uh, the inscriptions were constantly reused in the medieval times. Like we have many temples, churches, Christian churches in the 13th, 14th centuries, which were built exclusively by, from Roman stones. They were like using Roman cities, especially the big ones, Apulum and San Segatusa, the capital of the province. They were reusing constantly in the medieval times uh, their materiality. And you find almost in every big monument from the medieval and even the modern times, the 15th, 16th century, the Renaissance uh, buildings and castles of Transylvania, all of these has some Roman stones, uh, reliefs, mostly as polia and decoration. And somehow this fact that they were constantly living with this Roman past uh, helped also in in the 18th century when uh, Romanians begin to uh, to to emancipate and to be and the so-called nation building pro, 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 uh, process uh, began. Uh, so the Roman past and especially because the Romanian language is a neo-Latin language, somehow uh, was essential uh, to their nation-building project in the 19th century. And, uh, and this is still uh, a very alive uh, phenomenon. So like Dacia is definitely part of their uh, identity. And uh, most of the Romanians are still think that Romans are their direct ancestors. So they, 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 there is a direct link, a genealogical link somehow. Uh, of course, it's a modern myth, it's a modern uh, legend or uh, part of this uh, nation-building project, but um, they are very proud of, uh, of the Latin past, of the, of the Roman past. And the other part, this is a very small minority in Romania, and hopefully they will disappear. I am still hoping this. Uh, there, is, uh, there is a very ex- this, this, uh, new, this, um, uh, extreme right-wing groups, especially, who are uh, constantly refusing the Roman past and uh, somehow identify the Roman Empire and the Roman Dacia as an imperialist uh, conquerors who who destroyed the original Dacian pre-Roman society and 
in their mind, in their nation view, uh, building project, the Dacians, the pre-Roman uh, indigenous people of the of the of the Dacian provinces, they are the original ancestors of the Romanians. But they are now, uh, fortunately, represent a minority. This uh, phenomenon appeared in the 19th century also, similarly to the Chaltomania and, and, and also the Gallomania in France. Uh, uh, so there were, it's not a unique movement in European history, but most of these uh, uh, pre-Roman ancestors, uh, as I think also in Britain, in UK, there was uh, there was a similar movement when Boudicca was more important than Caesar and and and, uh, and the Claudius. So like uh, these movements in Europe somehow faded or disappeared in the in the early 20th century, but in Romania, unfortunately, was used also by Ceausescu, the, dicta the communist dictator in, in the 1970s, and especially in his, in his last years, in the 1980s, he imagined himself not as Trajan, not as, not as a new Trajan, as a new Roman uh, uh, empire, emperor, but as the Decebalus, Decebal and Burabista, the, the, the mythical or half-mythical kings uh, of the pre-Roman kingdom of the Dacian. So this, uh, both histories, both narratives were used for political aims and, and it, it's still very much uh, part of the political narrative, unfortunately. It's interesting that, uh, going back to actually when Andy Gardner was on the show, he made a more astute comment and I thought about how... Uh, archaeology is kind of almost now become inherently political as well because it's what we say is always kind of tied up in these questions of i guess where people come from quite often what we're saying is it's not what some people want to hear as you're saying about how some people like to construct their own origin myths but uh, when we come out and we try to counteract that and say no it's actually more like this um some people just don't really want to hear that and there's always this pushback and it's almost as if that um i suppose in some respects and I, I think this is a common in, in a number of countries now that uh, academia is seen as being inherently uh, left wing yeah. in terms of that we come out and say things because we are trying to discredit the right wing rather than just saying it because it's true. I mean, most academics do tend to be left wing, but I mean, we, we come out and say these things and discredit these ideas, but people seem to think that we're not telling the truth, which I find quite difficult. I mean, obviously... Um, Obviously, we know in places like Hungary as well, academia at the moment is really suffering under the current uh, regime, shall we say? Yes, uh, unfortunately, like my my big luck is, as I think, my one of my supervisors. Uh, I, I actually, uh, yes, we forget to mention that uh, I was very lucky to have three PhD supervisors, which which is quite unique, uh, probably, because I begin my PhD in Hungary, so I had a I had a originally a Hungarian supervisor. It's one of uh, the big names in, in Roman epigraphic studies, but he comes, as I said, from this positivistic school, positivistic traditions. And on the other hand, in Erfurt, I had as a supervisor Jörg Rübke from, from a very innovative uh, new school of Roman religious studies, and Greg Wolf, who is probably well known in, in UK and, in, and not only in UK now, as, uh, as also one of the uh, most innovative and most interesting uh, thinkers on, on Roman, Roman history. So like these three different traditions uh, for me was also very important. And, and I already observed uh, what you said that unfortunately in Hungary, things are changing um, uh, in, in a bad way uh, because, uh, because of the political background. Uh, I, 
maybe uh, our Roman archaeology and Roman classical studies are still not uh, so much uh, affected by this because in a way uh, we are a bit lucky to, to deal with, with the past which is not so close to our contemporary period like I think it's in Hungary now it's much more difficult to deal uh, objectively with medieval history, contemporary history, uh, genocides, and all these big tragedies of the 20th century are, are highly, uh, uh, yeah, has has a political connotations. But Roman history and Roman archaeology is still somehow a very international um, field, and it's less affected by by the political changes. But definitely. When, when, when a whole academic system is dis, uh, destroyed or uh, radically changed, uh, radically is changing, and, and uh, then, then all the new students of Roman archaeology and the classical studies will, will suffer and will have uh, uh, serious issues in, in the future. Yeah, yeah. I can't claim to really know all the ins and outs of it, but um, from, from what I hear and, and what I see, um, it's not looking good at the moment, but obviously, uh, current government in Hungary is, is not isolated, shall we say, uh, in their, in their approaches, you know, to be honest, uh, you could say that our oh, government's not a million miles away, but there you go. <laughs> not, not quite as bad as uh, in, in terms of its relationship with academia in that regard, but still it, it has its own, own issues as well, which seems to be getting worse. But I suppose on a, on a more optimistic note, I guess, take me back to, your own beginnings in in the subject. You talked a bit about your your PhD and your current research, but what was it that actually led you to want to study the Roman world? That's a hard question. I think uh, everybody <laughs> everybody might have an issue to answer this. Um, when I was, I think, in the in the high school or even even before, I, I liked very much history uh, since uh, in the fifth grade in the school, but. I was not sure if I want to deal with medieval history or, or other types of histories. Like for me, history was maybe a continuous line with beautiful stories and interesting personalities from every kind of uh, period. But in the high school, I, I was very much focusing on Egyptology, actually. <clears throat> I, I really want to, to get to Egyptology and uh, I even begin to, to buy new books on, on history of Egypt. Uh, there was a, an amazing uh, uh, atlas, a companion of ancient Egypt by uh, Jaromir Malek and uh, John Baines. And uh, I think many, many of the libraries have this book. It's one of the big series in European uh, uh, libraries. And, and for me, that was like a starting point to know also the Roman history of Egypt, which, uh, which somehow in two or three years changed my interest from, from, from the pharaonic Egypt to, to, to the Roman world, like to this Hellenistic and uh, Roman uh, period of, of Egypt. And when in the university in Cluj, uh, in Transylvania, then I realized that actually Egyptology is it's a very unpragmatic choice for, for us in Romania, because unfortunately, Romania is one of the few countries in the European Union which still don't have an Egyptological um, uh, department. Uh, so for, and, and I'm not good in philology. So definitely for me, Egyptology was not an option. I mean, I realized that it's mostly, hmm. it's mostly about, uh, uh, learning grammar for, for a guardian's, uh, uh, Egyptian grammar for like three years or four years in the university. Then, then I realized that it's definitely not for me, but I'm still very much into, into the Oriental and Near East, uh, history. And in the university, in the first year in the university, I was already, uh, Certainly, I, I was. I, I knew that I want to learn Roman history and uh, Roman archaeology because, well, as I said, uh, Romania had this extremely rich uh, heritage and it's still a living heritage. 
the the narratives of the Isha, the myth of the Isha, and uh, and I find a gap in 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 the research history because nobody was dealing with the cult of Mithras uh, at least in the last fifty years since for Nasserum maybe. So I think that was the decisive moment when I found in the second year of my university that there is a pretty nice uh, topic, which I, I somehow related also to Oriental studies, maybe. But as you know, you know also very well that Mitras is not necessarily an Oriental god, maybe with some uh, Orientalized or Persianized aspects, as Richard Gordon said. But it somehow was a link between my early interest in Near East and, and Roman Roman heritage, which we have every, everywhere where we go in Transylvania. Mm, yeah. No, definitely uh, Mithras is a very good choice. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> so just to move towards ending now, do you have any ideas or any thoughts at all on how you would like to see the discipline study of Roman archaeology evolve in, in the future? Obviously, we talked about the connections between Eastern Europe and, and Western Europe and dialogue uh, between scholars and obviously touched on as well kind of some of the negative aspects that are going on in, in some countries at the moment in terms of the government's relationship with academia. But do you have any thoughts on how you'd like to see things or how you'd like to see things evolve or any future avenues of research that you think are worth exploring? I think... Uh... Classical archaeology and Roman archaeology now in, in, is in a very good uh, position, and I, I really hope that most—I mean, the, the fate and the future of Roman archaeology and classical studies, or maybe even generally human, humanities—are totally dependent on politics and on how European Union and how individual countries are dealing with their uh, research system, with their education system, and. I think here um, European Union represents one of the key factors, and I really, I, I really hope that somehow this community of European Union community can uh, uh, can help us to to make this uh, interconnectivity even more powerful, because there is definitely a very very rich connectivity between Western and Eastern Europe now. I think these denominations will soon disappear, and and this is what I really hope actually. That these barriers, uh, which which persisted in in European mentality since maybe at least 100 years or even more, I think European Union is a good chance that these differences, cultural differences and and, and mentalities, they they will disappear soon, and uh, that will help also individual countries like the UK to to get over from some 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 political and ideological issues and also from from central east europe to get over some local frustrations and and that definitely will help also academic researchers to to have to have a like a borderless uh, limit, uh, uh, relationship and and a borderless uh, uh, connectivity uh, and this is how i see classical archaeology in the future without borders um, and, and a very intense uh, collaboration. And, and I, I hope at least that humanities, uh, uh, this is the only chance for humanities to be saved and to, to have a future with, uh, with collaboration between countries, collaboration between uh, disciplines, especially intense collaboration with uh, real sciences, uh, which is already exist. Uh, so this is how I see uh, the future, intense, 
mobilities and connectivities. Amen to that. Completely agree. I was going to say as, as well, I guess when we talk about connectivity and the idea of not distinguishing between things like East and West, et cetera, I suppose the flip side of that as well is the fact that understanding that when we talk about things like the Roman Empire, it's a shared heritage amongst all of us. And that, that way that it's, it is, it's a subject that is very much ripe for collaboration, uh, as you say, not just in terms of with other disciplines, but also internationally as well. And that there is a lot that can be shared and a lot that can be, there's much of our understanding that can be improved by collaboration. And from my own area of research, much like your own on Roman religion, it seems to me that there's a lot that we can learn about perhaps what's going on in terms of the religious landscape of the Roman Empire by looking at places that particularly like, let's say, for example, the Danube regions, and that that can then inform us about changes elsewhere as well, and vice versa. We were talking really early on about the connectivity of the Danubian provinces and this idea that in some respects that we almost, in a modern term, construct, well, in a modern sense, construct these borders between these different Roman provinces that weren't so apparent in the past. Mm. And I suppose in some respects that, yeah, it's quite nice that we've kind of cycled, gone back around to that, because I think that's kind of what we're saying here as well is the fact that we kind of need, we need to forget about borders, no, not completely forget about borders, but we need to change our mindset about them. Yes. I mean, as, as you said, I think also nowadays, uh, uh, Roman, Roman archaeology and Roman studies having this constant question, what are the few, what is the future of Roman uh, studies? What, what will what will happen with our discipline? And uh, we, we we can hear many presentations of, of Mary Beard or, or other scholars on 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 the role of Rome and the heritage of Rome for contemporary society. What what can we learn from Romans? And I think what you already said that the connectivity of the ancient people are are, are it's a very good example which are still living with us. Like we, we can learn a lot about the mobility of the soldiers. We, you, we have Dacians, for example, Dacian soldiers in the UK, in, in, in the, in the, in the wall of, wall of Hadrian. There was, uh, there were, uh, there is an in- interesting inscription, uh, dedicated probably for one of the British, uh, British, like a Briton, uh, god, uh, the matresses, uh, which is coming from Britannia and, and, and the woman was dedicating to this, uh, divinity in Apollon in, in Dacia. And, and there are many, many other connectivities which uh, which we somehow forget uh, when when we are talking about uh, history and and the relationship between these areas. And I think it's, it probably doesn't stop actually when the Roman Empire uh, changed in the medieval times. Well, I'm not specialist in medieval history, but I'm, I'm almost I'm, I'm sure that this these mobilities existed uh, also in the medieval times, and and we know that from modern times, like. I think these are essential topics which which we can learn a lot also about our own society. I totally agree, and um, I think there's, I think in some respects, there's, as we all know, there's there's much to be gained from studying the past, and much that can inform us about our, our current world, and in some respects as well, the legacy of the past can can help bring us together, hopefully in a very positive manner. 
So yeah, so uh, just just to bring it to a close then, do you have anything that you would like to advertise at all? You obviously have the various uh, websites that you, you run. I mean, one for the Danube project, one you had mentioned, I can't remember if you mentioned it earlier or you mentioned it before we started, but uh, the religion uh, in the Roman Empire website as well. Did you just want to give those a brief mention? Yes, I... Um... I'm trying every year to sum up what what is happening in in, the, in my own research field, which is Roman religion. And there is a Facebook page called Roman Religion. Uh, so if you uh, or the um, audience, you can watch the, uh, what was published in the last years, mostly uh, monographs, but also very nice pictures from from my own uh, visits in, in different kind of sanctuaries and museums in in Italy, in Europe, and in many other countries. I, I was. So it's a, it's an interactive Facebook page mostly for for the greater public, but but I think it's very useful also for for researchers. I'm trying to to publish to, to post uh, every week at least one or two uh, posts on on the, late, the recent publications on Roman religion, and in every year there is a there is a sum up where I'm trying to make a list of the the major books on on. Uh, on Roman religious studies, like I, I think there's, um, it's useful also for my research to to keep um, to keep alive somehow or to to get in line with with the recent publications. But uh, I already had many feedbacks from from researchers that it's a very useful tool. Uh, they uh, it, it makes it easier for for the researchers also to to get an idea what was what's happening in our discipline. Yeah, uh, well, as we were saying before we started, there's so much that's published nowadays. It's nice to have somewhere that provides you with an overview of a particular area of study in the subject. I mean, obviously, there's tons of books produced on the Roman Empire every year, but having somewhere that's particularly devoted to religion, which keeps on top of that, uh, is a very handy resource. Also, as well, your PhD was published as a book. Still on sale? Yeah, I published my PhD in 2018 uh, in, at Archeo Press uh, Roman Archaeological Series, and uh, it called uh, Sanctuaries in Roman Dacia, Materiality and Religious Experience, and you can access also on, on the website of Archeo Press. And as far as I know, there are most of the libraries in the UK already have this book, or the bigger libraries at least, and... Uh, I still waiting for some feedbacks and reviews or or uh, we can discuss about the book and I hope uh, it's it, it's a, it's a case study uh, for a single province uh, but maybe the methodological methodological approach was was uh, triggering enough for for other scholars to to maybe use for other provinces or or, or bigger areas also a lot of mithras which is yeah. also good <laughs> yes i mean um I'm working now also on uh, uh, on, a, on a book on, on Mithras in Roman Dacia. So like uh, I'm trying to sum up my my uh, research in the last ten years on on Roman Mithras, mostly already published articles, but I will have also a, a, a general introduction on, on the cult of Mithras, and and I will publish also like the a list of sanctuaries of uh, or list of the Mithraea in, in in Dacia. So I I hope that book will be published next year, maybe. And uh, I could probably, I think as far as I know, this is the first monograph on, on Mithras in Roman Dacia. Okay, right. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much.
thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies, who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. Cheers.